Welcome back to Bubble Trouble, conversations between two actual humans, not deep fakes or AI confabulations, <laughs> the real-life double act of independent analyst Richard Kramer, that's me, and the economist and author Will Page, that's him. We're closing in fast on our 100th episode of exposing the sycophants and sonographers for creating the bubbles and getting all of our portfolios and even society into trouble. Now we have one of the noisiest self-promoters on the VC Carnival Barker circuit, a man who famously said software would eat the world when he had stocked his portfolio with software companies, making some wild claims and staking out a position about techno-optimism. What does this mean? With our skeptical hat on, we're going to look at it, try to unpack the fears and hopes for the tech revolution to come. We'll be back in a moment to put this one to the bubble trouble test. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Richard, I'm genuinely feeling this week's episode. I want to get my head around this guy and this manifesto. Um, it came out on Substack. And I have to say before we get going, Rich, Substack sucks. It's an awful newsletter medium. I can't work out how to use the app, the website, to print documents off is not so straightforward. Rent aside, just quickly tell me and our audience, for those who've never heard of the words, Mark Andresen, who is this guy? Why does his voice stand above the crowd? Well, so Mark Andreessen is one of the loudest voices in the Silicon Valley venture capital community with a fund that bears his name, at least in half the title, Andreessen Horowitz. And he has weighed in with a manifesto about techno-optimism, why we should be grateful for technology, embrace it, and largely supporting his own financial position as well, just allow it untrammeled fealty over all of our lives. Does his words move markets like Warren Buffett? If Warren Buffett coughs, the rest of the market catches a cold? Or is he that significant? Not at all. As a matter of fact, his firm, Andreessen Horowitz, pioneered a model, something like 15 or 20 years ago, where they had this confluence of cheap capital alongside this cult of personality social media phenomenon. And they basically were ones who in the private markets would go long and loud. So they'd invest in a company very early stage, and then they built a propaganda PR machine to evangelize for the company and pump its tires, hopefully to eventually get it sold or IPO'd at a spectacular return. And they were incredibly successful. Now, being a talent spotter with money behind you 
doesn't necessarily make you a visionary philosopher or political leader to throw out techno-optimism manifestos, but I guess this guy is, has a no shortage of self-belief and wants to play that so role. So venture capitalists wrapped up in a marketing company, basically. Absolutely. And they were one of the very clever VCs that built up a portfolio of their own businesses. They had their in-house lawyers and in-house marketers and accountants. And so the money that they were investing in the companies, they would be charging back to them with these extra services that they would be providing to those struggling entrepreneurs. I hear it. All right. So how are we going to tackle this, this 30-minute read tech manifesto? <laughs> well, this was basically a love letter to tech innovation, and it made wild sweeping statements like, AI is, the, is our alchemy of turning sand into genius. <laughs> Uh, it was also incredibly tinnied, especially with all that's going on in the world right now. It's almost unreal that we should care about it, other than to understand this kind of extreme privileged narcissism that's on display, and also the apologia, if you will, for just rampant exploitation. And we can go through some of the wild claims, but one of the things I was curious about, Will, is he talked a lot about economics very selectively. There's a lot of sort of reference to economists and economic theory in, in, in this manifesto. Anything worth unpacking here? Anything that actually sounded sensible? There was a lot of quoting. There was a lot of quoting, but there wasn't a lot of citations. And that, as a first-time author, makes me worry that there might not have been a lot of fact-checking to go with it. But I'll pick out some quotes to go here. Um, he quotes Paul Collier, very interesting economist. Collier is interesting on a lot of areas. One of the most interesting ones that he talks about, and it filters into this manifesto, is migration. His point being, if all your nurses and doctors are coming from sub-Saharan Africa, then your health system's got a problem. If they were all trained and developed in sub-Saharan Africa, then that region of the world has got a problem. So he's very good at dealing with inconvenient truths around immigration. I thought that was interesting that he picked on Paul Collier, a very contentious economist, but just picking up on just the role of economic growth. I think when you read Collier's work, you realize economic growth has its limits. He seemed to be saying that economic growth has no limits. Well, and look, he's also, I think, almost at an absurd level, talking about, quoting Andy Warhol, saying how great it is in America that it, the rich people can drink Coke and the poor people can have a Coke as well. But when you think about who gets the capital that gets allocated by the likes of an Andreessen Horowitz, or who gets to live in a country with the infrastructure to support the companies that Andreessen Horowitz might invest in. Um, I don't think things are as um, equitably distributed as the kind of optimism in this manifesto might imply. So from the current economist, Paul Collier, to an economist from way back in the past, he also picked up on that famous Scott Adam Smith. Did you notice that one, Richard? I did. He had a little shout out there, as you would say, Will. <laughs> Talking about his invisible hand, which made me wonder, is the invisible hand called the invisible hand because it's not actually there at all? But you could see him classically quoting the baker, the makers, and just the people involved in the supply chain act for their own self-interest. And that, by acting in your self-interest, produces the common good of the bread you consume. Just his way of understanding a value chain what I thought he didn't tackle with Adam Smith, or, and I hear this a lot when people quote the invisible hand of the free market and the lack of need of the state intervention, is he didn't tackle the need for reciprocity. The fact that all those people involved in that supply chain that Adam Smith talked about need each other. They all know each other. 
And I think reciprocity is a word that gets missed from this sort of free market rants of Mark Andreessen here. Yeah, and, and equally, this sort of pan to free marketeering is feels a little dated to me. I mean, you have things like uh, quotes like falling prices benefit everyone who buys goods and services, which is to say everyone. Now, that's nice, but it doesn't deal with one of the great words uh, bandied around by economists, which is externalities. It's easy mm -hmm. to make cheaper and cheaper stuff if you don't have to worry about poisoning the rivers or belching horrible smoke or polluting the air, what have you. Yeah. And no one deals with all of these externalities of what it means to produce millions of pairs of acid wash jeans a year or something like that. Even if you can go to your local TJ Maxx or somewhere like that and buy a brand new pair for a tenner. And just rolling that forward to my second favorite economist, Ronald Coase, who I think made it to the, 100 mm -hmm. years old before he, he left us. But if you go back to his classic example of oil refinery pollutes the river, you know, fishermen need to get fish out of the river, pollution suffers, causes damage to the fish, but equally the fishermen need oil to run their boats. And that's a great example of an externality, one person's actions is affecting another's, but also reciprocity. Whilst we don't want pollution in the river, we do need oil to run our boats. I think that's a much more reality check of how an economy works than mm. what I'm reading when Andreessen picks out the invisible hand and misquotes the great Adam Smith. Yeah, and I think he also quotes Buckminster Fuller and this sort of dematerialization thesis that we're going to get so efficient using technology that eventually we'll be able to do everything with nothing. It's a kind of utopian vision of the world, although he dramatically denies that he's a utopian. Uh, it's this vision of the world that technology will will save us from all of what ails us. And I just think it hits these hard realities of tell that to kids that are struggling to get school meals or teens facing mental health crises or youth unemployment at record levels in China, where they have fewer and fewer young people from the one child policy or the massive environmental crises and externalities, the sixth extinction, if you will, of, of species. All of these. What's not to like, Richard? What's not to like? <laughs> All of these are just left out of this idea that technology will liberate humanity. And I guess yeah. he would also be a believer, although he doesn't mention it here, in this notion of the singularity, that we're all going to upload our consciousnesses to a giant hard drive in the sky. Pink Floyd didn't think up that when they wrote Dark Side of the Moon. And, <laughs> uh, and we'll all be living in a giant cloud storage facility in the sky and interacting yeah. with one another. And, and one, let me for stick me, with that sky analogy. Let me stick with that sky okay. analogy just real quickly there, because another example where I don't think he understands the role of the state in the market in this kind of utopian pushback on the market, on the state and let the market govern everything is, well, let's look at the sky. What if you had private ownership of the sky? You wouldn't get the collective action and coordination you did to allow the global flight network to to develop to what it's become, that requires state intervention. That requires state coordination to allow planes to fly around the world and drop these VCs off when they're inspecting tech companies. I think that's how, that's if you didn't have the state intervention and the state coordination, you'd just end up with gridlock. You'd have patent trolls in the sky catching that plane out when it crosses the wrong border point. So I, I think that's another example of where he's just completely misunderstood how markets actually work. They work with the benefit of the state coordination. They work with the benefit of the state intervention not against state intervention, not against state coordination. Will, I couldn't agree more. And it reminds me of the rather flawed, but very interesting, kind of thin for him, Michael Lewis book, uh, uh, The Pan, or sort of the love letter to government. Thank goodness we have food safety officials around the world, 
not just for things that show up in our country, but in the factories where they're producing the food or farms where they're producing the food in other countries, that we have global standards for medicines, that we have this, this endless work by faceless bureaucrats that keeps us safe. And the, the tone of this Andreessen techno-optimism letter is to heck with all of it. We really don't need it. It's mostly just bureaucratic getting in the way of things and meddling with the invisible hand. And I think, Will, you're spot on. We need collective action and networks of reciprocity to ensure that we educate our children and keep the environment safe and create the conditions, the rule of law, so businesses can interact with one another and look at the countries where that rule of law is suspect and ask how many Western companies still have major operations in Russia. So from getting those legendary economists wrong to one where I thought he got it right was to quote William Nordhaus, who I believe is still at Yale University. But what he didn't do when he quoted Nordhaus was cite his famous paper about the cost of light. I don't know if you know this, but a long story short, the price of, of light alone gives you a fascinating story of how modern economics work, particularly in technology, in that the unit cost of light has fallen by a factor of 500,000 since it was first brought to our attention, far faster than any inflation metric would capture. So Nordhaus's work on light tells us about technological advancements. Light used to be a very expensive thing to do. How many labor hours did you have to do to produce one hour of light? Now it's so cheap you don't actually notice. And he has the reference to a pencil. If I borrow your pencil, I don't give it back, you don't notice. Why can't energy be the same? And I think Nordhaus opens the door to a far more constructive conversation about the role of technology in terms of reducing the unit cost of things. Did you, did you feel a little bit more traction with his Nordhaus quote and well, reference to light? So there are many examples where this Moore's Law phenomenon that you would, uh, you're referring to in Nordhaus's work and others of improving incrementally or exponentially year after year gets compounded in the same way as a compound savings rate means you'll take a small amount of money and in 50 years turn it into a very large amount of money. I, I don't disagree that we have those things going on all over the place, but I also see the statement per capita U.S. carbon emissions are lower now than they were 100 years ago. And I have to think, <laughs> well, that's all well and good, but 100 years ago, you had effectively a lot of virgin territory to conquer, which Phoenix didn't exist as a city, and now it's 4 million people in the Arizona desert. And you have many more people and much more built up around those individuals that has taken its toll. And that's why we see the environmental degradation that we do. And I think to make these sort of statements and to look at the exponential positive curves is very flippant because it overlooks the many negatives. So last of the, the great economists to get cited in this manifesto was David Ricardo, mm -hmm. uh, Ricardian Comparative Economics. Don't do what you're good at, do what you're great at. Yeah. There's two islands, the island of Kramer and the island of Page. And Kramer's, he's all right at arable farming, but he's great at livestock farming. And I'm all right at livestock farming, but I'm great at arable farming. Well, let me focus on arable farming and you focus on livestock farming. And the factor outputs of production are so much greater because we specialize in what we're great at. I get it. But it goes back to what Collier was saying about immigration. I don't believe we compete on trade of did Germany sell more cars to the rest of Europe this quarter than last quarter. I don't think that's a trade. I honestly think we need to rewrite the rule books here 
we trade in human capital. Think about it. Absolutely. You know, Italy and Spain produce fantastic graduates from brilliant universities. Bocconi University, one of the best in the whole of Europe. But where do they go when they finish? They don't stick around in Italy or, or, or Spain. They, they travel to Northern Europe to pick up jobs, expand their disposable income, reduce their tax burden, and get a better chance of breaking it through. Why are there 350,000 middle-class professionals from P Paris living and working in London? And I, I honestly think that it's a big ask as we close out part one, but my plea to the audience here is to just ditch the common logic of economics that we compete on car manufacturing or exporting services and goods abroad. The real competition is for people. Where are the smart people going? Why is one third of American PhDs from overseas and most of them intend to stay when they finish? Hmm. You compete for ideas. And people. And look, I want to say, just to be fair, there are a couple of things I really did agree with him on. One was his support of nuclear power, which I agree should be a, a major portion of our future energy needs and, and are falling prey to this precautionary principle and sometimes being overcautious about new innovations. And at the same time, I found it highly amusing that he says we should be fostering practical skills in people. We shouldn't be to become technological supermen. We should be learning practical skills, learning how to work with our hands. And this is someone who has basically spent the last decade telling us that we all need to work in virtual businesses. And in this manifesto told us that the internet cured isolation, which I find a little rich. But uh, maybe <laughs> did, we too. Did he back NFTs back in the day? Well, and he did was a major proponent of crypto and a large investor in FTX uh, uh, before it went bust. So, um, you know, what can I say? He's one of those true believers in the red pill universe. Well, maybe wrapping up part one there. I mean, it, it's great to see the, the four economists that I cited here get mentioned in this article. I think he did a good job citing them. I don't think it was complete, but just to recap, with Paul Collier, he's right. The economy is like a bicycle that doesn't move forward, it falls over. But it takes more than just tech utopia manifestos to move an economy forward, all of the economy forward, not just some of the economy forward. With Adam Smith, of course, everyone likes to incite the invisible hand. But you've got to be careful. Adam Smith gave the world thousands, hundreds of thousands of words. He mentioned the invisible hand three times in his life. And on not one occasion was he referring to free market capitalism. Just a little fact check there might help. With William Nordhaus, I think that's where, for our audience, we could do another episode on the work of William Nordhaus. It's fascinating to get into his work in terms of the unit cost of things like light and looking at that over time as a way of capturing what technology is doing. And with Ricardo, yes, comparative advantage matters. Yes, that's how countries and companies compete. But the real competition across borders is not selling cars to one another. It's grabbing the brightest and best people to work inside your borders. That's where this is going. So with that, let's take this manifesto and put it to the test in part one. That's where we can make sense of it. In part two, I want to flip the dial a little and find out where it makes no sense or nonsense. More in a moment.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome back to part two of Bubble Trouble. We're talking about the techno-optimist manifesto by venture capitalist Mark Andreessen. And well, we'll hold back our own opinion of what a load of rubbish most of it is. But anyone who wants to find it can find it on Substack. I think a quick browser search will bring it up. But over to Will. Grand stuff. Well, in part one, we did the sensible stuff. William Nordhaus, huge contribution to understanding what tech is doing to the world. Adam Smith, huge contribution period to how the world actually works. But part two, I wanted to see, has this guy taken a stupid pill? Now, you used an interesting word on our introduction, Richie, because you used the word narcissist. Before I go into the narcissistic behavior of part two, just can you just sort of put some color around that narcissistic word? Well, again, someone who is effectively a financier of technology companies and financing itself is not, is not, I won't say rocket science, but it, while it involves complexities, it doesn't fundamentally involve innovation itself right. in the sense that the in-product and the out-product are the same. People give this guy money, and he hopefully gives them back more money <laughs> while taking some of it himself. That is what someone running a venture capital fund does. Now, there are a lot of other things they do alongside that, drawing attention to the companies they invest in. Yeah, I mean, fundamentally, his business involves people giving him money, him investing it, and him giving them back more money than they gave him to invest. And him taking some of that. Oh, for this is that's, that's the game. I mean, we can overcomplicate things, but that is at the heart of his business. So, so when that man is telling us about lies and truth and technology and what our guiding philosophy for the future should be, I, I just I'm like, okay, are you a professor of philosophy at Yale? Are you an acolyte of the Dalai Lama? Are you my rabbi? <laughs> I mean, what what am I? Who am I supposed to turn to for this stuff? And I, my first port of call would not be Mark Andreessen. <laughs> When our, when our podcast finally becomes a video broadcast, you'll see that my face is red and I've got oh tears goodness. of laughter coming down my cheeks right now. Okay, take stock, big gulp, hold a straight face. Yeah, and I'm okay. going to ask big you gulp. about, Thanks. of yeah. all the lofty figures he tosses out in this essay, there's one big one that really jumps out to me. Talk to me about the 50 billion figure. I mean, five yeah. okay. zero, so, but you know, not mer, 50 billion. Right, right. So, and reason has this concept of abundance, that technology is creating this incredible abundance. And it's true. Had Fritz Haber, the chemist, not after he invented mustard gas and killed tens of hundreds of thousands of people in the First World War, turned around and invented uh, sort of the use of nitrogen and phosphates as a fertilizer and 
enable the feeding of billions of people. The, he kind of atoned for his first brilliant discovery with the second brilliant discovery. Yes, we are in a world where we have these successive waves of abundance, of health and food and all these things that support mass population of the earth. And, you know, in this, the persecution complex comes out when Andreessen says we're being told to denounce our birthright, which is our intelligence, our control over nature and our ability to build a better world. And then he, he spins that into saying the planet is dramatically underpopulated. We, we have this all this abundance we can create for everyone. And it's not utopia, but it's close enough. Now, again, these are the same guys who want to upload their consciousness to the singularity and advance to some, as he says, a far superior way of living and being. And I think a lot of people in their heart of hearts would just find this whole attitude off-putting or insulting or, or disgusting. But 50 billion? Uh, you know, 50 of, billion? It's, it's, I know we've got 8 billion. Tell me about where yeah. the 42 billion others come from. Well, and we're about to unleash in the next decade some obligation to mass migration for survival for billions of people in the world based on climate reasons. And how you can lay out this notion that you might have to subtract two but gain 44, uh, where are you going to put these people? Where, and what resources will they consume? And how will they not advance this environmental catastrophe that we've already got ourselves into? Well, maybe the Scottish Highlands is where you could put a few of them. That's pretty sparse up there. <laughs> well, and I'm sure like, like New Zealand, there are a lot of techno-optimist billionaires who are buying up the bolt holes in the Scottish uh, Highlands to think that will be the climate safe place to hang out right. for another Maybe the population doesn't grow to 50 billion anytime soon, but he does talk about the highest level of material living standards ever. And yet all I hear yeah, about and, is and, young and, people can't get on the property market. It's, it's just, it just seems to kind of, that irked me okay. a bit. Is there a stupid pill in that one? Well, look, this is the, there, there's a grain of truth in a lot of the things that will be dropped in here, but it's all about the distribution. And absolutely, if you're a Silicon Valley VC, you feel you've got the highest level of material standards ever because your new yacht has all the tech trimmings you could imagine. But for the people cleaning the toilets in his mansions or tending the, the gardens, the organic uh, vegetable gardens, I'm not sure those people are having the highest level of material standards ever. As a matter of fact, there's a lot of evidence in in many countries where life expectancy or living standards are declining. But it is absolutely true, and I agree with Steven Pinker and others on this subject, that we have done a phenomenal job as a civilization, possibly at huge environmental cost, undoubtedly at huge environmental cost, of lifting hundreds of millions or billions of people out of abject poverty Agreed. and to a, a higher basic level of material living standards. And it, that's kind of the throwaway line when you don't want to talk about the way in which those materials, if you will, are distributed and how unequally they're distributed. Because the inequality of their distribution has been the striking fact of the last, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 years, uh, um, right? For our audience's benefit, one book I'd love to cite on that tip is Hans Rosling, who I got to work with. And his oh, book, yeah. Factfulness, which starts off with a sort of questionnaire to ask yourself a bunch of typically pessimistic questions. And then you answer them in a typically yeah. pessimistic way. And then you flip over to the answers page and realize, no, the most optimistic answer was correct. And things are not as bad as they are when you actually look at facts from a slightly different perspective. So that, that's an important one. And then secondly, on your point about the distribution, I have to quote William Gibson's 
the future is already here, but it's not evenly distributed with my own personal William Dougal Page retort, which is, well, what do you want to change, the future or the distribution? It's just an interesting way of thinking about that challenge. Okay, so from having a population of 50 billion people to the highest level of material living standards for those 50 billion people, stupid pill number three moment for me comes in when he talks to me about victim mentality. (laughs) And to put you on the spot, Richard, are you a victim? Or in the words of Mark Andreessen, do you want to be or do we need to be punkers? Again, one has to acknowledge the sort of grain of, I won't say truth, but grain of social currency in this victimhood, in this competitive victimhood that we have. And I think it's been exacerbated by the social media companies that Mark Andreessen invested in. The idea that we're supposed to have some particular I make up of identities or one identity, and that identity is always somehow treated unfairly. It's a very seductive and easy principle. And I understand how he's railing against it because you can see how damaging it becomes to the social fabric. Everybody is always making claims and counterclaims as they're the least fairly treated in society. Leaving all that aside, this also is a huge preconceived excuse for accelerated exploitation of this confluence of cheap capital and the cult of the tech personality on behalf of entrepreneurs. And they can build businesses which have highly damaging consequences or operate in, frankly, unethical ways and feel fine about it because they're a conqueror and not a victim. So I'd rather kill or be killed. That's fine. And At what point do you scale that up for the wider society and say, well, in a nation of America where there are as many guns as people, if you have a choice of being a victim or a conqueror, does that mean you should just shoot people as opposed to get shot? And what, where is your concept of reciprocity that keeps us all on the same page, Mr. Page, in this world? And it just feels such a, a false dichotomy. And while again, I have sympathy for this competitive victimhood culture of and and I'm not on social media I don't want to observe it all the time it's a straw man for him to say our opponents are fear guilt and resentment and our ideals are ambition abundance and adventure we all want a lot of abundance and adventure just not all of us seem to be able to have access to it all the time mark and we all would love to live without fear or guilt but sometimes we do things we don't feel we maybe we have a moral compass or a center we don't feel good about and some things we have concerns about. And he's just waving all that aside. Yeah. Uh, I'm not going to disagree with you there. One area we may find ourselves disagreeing is he takes aim at ESG. And I actually think he may have a point here. I'm beginning to get very cynical about the ESG sort of mantra in investment at the moment. The amount of money that you have to spend to become ESG compliant. And if you spend that much money, nobody's going to say that you're not compliant. Think about it for a minute. Moral hazard, come on in. Mm. Um, and also, what is ESG? And what I mean by that is, what if you're really strong on the E, but really weak on the G? Do you qualify? Is this a composite matrix? Uh, to be honest, I'm at the stage now where the closer you look at it, the more I just want to throw the entire acronym into the trash can. But I'm not the 30-year independent analyst expert here. You are. Walk me through his remarks on ESG. Look, I, I have some absolute sympathy here. And I think it's closer to the mark in that ESG has become this self-perpetuating industry of consultants and greenwashing language and fake projects. 
as well as some heartfelt efforts. And the idea here is that the rules, as we've seen in so many other areas of the economy, are there to be gamed. And fair enough. But at the same time, I feel like some of this is coming from this classic libertarian, leave it to me. Any constraint on my operations is unfair. It's kind of a whingy grad student cod philosophy, which is basically uh, that someone else is to blame. For all someone like Mark Andreessen might embrace the growth mindset, he's exhibiting the classic sort of let's blame someone else, blame this crazy set of rules and acronyms they're supposed to follow for the simple moral obligation of companies trying to behave more responsibly with regards to the environment or how they treat their stakeholders. So I'm really, you know, I'm torn on this one because I, I agree ESG is, is a mess and it's being used improperly in many ways, but it, it also is part of this libertarian philosophy of don't tell me what to do. And unfortunately, that deregulatory impulse has left us with a lot of bad cases of, of failure. As we'll discuss in our 100th episode, more on that in a moment, as you might say. Can I just toss out one area in the stupid pill part of this show where I think you may have had a point? You mentioned the Andy Warhol remarks earlier in part one. It's all right. I just want to pick up on that in part two. There was a line I tried to write in the book and it never made it to the final manuscript, which is, if you think about the Royal Mail, we still have first class and second class post. What's the cost of offering a two-tier post system? Do you actually have to pay for somebody to pull those letters out and say, well, don't deliver them just yet because I know they're ready to go in the post bag at no marginal cost, but because it's second class, we're going to hold it for a day. Like, it just seems a weird thing to have a first class and a second class post network. And Andy Warhol talked about the democratisation of access and how everybody can buy a coat. And it just made me think, you could be the king and I could be a homeless tramp down and out on a park bench, but we both have Gmail accounts. We both have the same functionality for communication around the world. Our emails don't go faster or slower depending on our incomes. Our features aren't more or less depending on our statures. Tech has democratized access in a way that's almost unfathomable. And on that point, I give them full marks. Yeah, and, and, and that's fair enough. It's just not a particularly, it's no genius to point this out. Let me challenge you on this first class and second class point. Because I think when those two distinctions were brought in, there was such a volume of mail, and it may also have been a reaction to the rise of the direct mail industry. Remember, we used to get dozens of pieces of mail trying to sell us stuff that was sent not particularly to us, as well as letters penned only to us by friends and family. And to cope with that volume, they had to reduce the marginal cost of some of it to allow the most high priority stuff to flow through. Now, your point about Gmail is once you set up the network, the marginal cost of sending that email is near zero. So we all have access to that same technology and that's fine. But I don't want to dismiss how much has been democratized by, by technology. But tell me, Will, where did you find this particular author had swallowed the biggest chunk of stupid pill? Well, I can maybe bring it into a couple of smoke singles for the for the audience to turn this one around for you. I knew you were waiting for that. I, I think this is kind of where I want to bring it into a, an end, though, which is the first 
words worried me because he invents the enemy, ITE. In intellectual discourse just now, I notice it's often, quite often, riddled with invent the enemy statements. There's lots of people out there who say this, and I'm going to produce this really intelligent argument which says that. Well, who are those people who say this? Show me them. Are they credible people? I can find incredible people that say lots of things. Loch Ness Monster is real. Do you want me to fight the enemy of people who say the Loch Ness Monster is real? Are these just cranks that I should be ignoring? If you go back to the very opening section of his essay, he invents the enemy where he says, we are told that technology takes over our jobs. Where's the citation? Where's the proof? Who actually said that? Was it the tramp on Kentish Town High Street sitting on the bench with a bottle of Buckfast? Give me the valid source that said technology's well, taken over and, our and, jobs. And the next one is the next one is it reduces our wages at a time when America now has a fifteen dollar minimum wage nationally, <laughs> and the UK has the highest minimum wage. Well, and but, let's but he you, also, know, you, you had minimum wages decline in real terms for twenty years. Yeah, and that was awful and unfair, and. Maybe now we're just restoring some of that fairness, he, despite the technology. But, but it's really important for the audience to get this point, which is when you open by saying, we are told, who told you? We are told to be pessimistic. I'm Scottish. I don't need to be told to be pessimistic. It's in my fucking blood. We are told to be right. miserable. Who tells you to be miserable? I genuinely, the big smoke signal above all of this is he has done what you hear in so much intelligent debate these days, which is you invent the enemy to bolster your point. And that has to be eradicated. Show me the citations, show me the fact check sources that a credible person with influence said you have to be miserable. And then I will believe your counter argument, which is we need to buy into this narcissistic manifesto, which says we don't need to be miserable, but don't get off on the wrong foot by inventing the enemy and then building a case around an invention. We talk about the invisible hand. These are the invisible quotes. I can't find out where they come from. I'll tell you, a, a smoke signal for me is this pain to optimism. And I think it's great to be optimistic whether this may be a, a smoke screen for declining returns in the VC sector and maybe even the wider collapse of that business model. Maybe they just don't want to think about the fact that one of those rockets to Mars might take more carbon emissions than a small city consumes in a year. But I'm all for optimism. It just has to bring everyone along and acknowledge that the distribution point, the starting point for that optimism is very different when you're sitting in a plush Silicon Valley mansion relative to on some of the mean streets of London, not far from where you or I live. Agreed. And the point of bringing everyone along is terrific. Unfortunately, the history of the world with Mark Andreessen in it as a, as one of the prominent actors for the last 20 or 30 years has left more and more people behind as opposed to bring them with it. And if I can turn this brace of smoke signals into a hat trick, a third for me is not just lacking the citations to show who actually attacked him in the first place, unless it was just a bout of narcissistic paranoia, sowing a seed, maybe that will take root. But in caveats, he didn't really caveat any of his points. A really bold claims, 50 billion people, that's a nice fat round number, but without any real caveats um, as well. One of the big ones in terms of how tech actually works, which I think the audience really needs just a quick refresher on, is to go back to 1866 and the engineer Walter Jevons and the, di the dynamics of what we call Jevons' paradox. Basically, he simply argued, mm -hmm. how come if we've all become more coal efficient, we use more coal? Because we find more efficient uses of coal. 
I'll mm. take that up a level. You go into your kitchen, you've probably got a large refrigerator, bigger than you would have had 20, 30 years ago. Why is that? Because refrigeration became much more energy efficient, so we all bought bigger refri refrigerators to store more food. As a result, we used up more energy. If a unit of cloud computing is supposed to halve every three years, according to Jeff Bezos' law, then because it's going to get so much cheaper, we store so much more, and cloud becomes this hugely profitable energy-consuming business. That is, for me, how tech really works. And that would have been a nice caveat, a nice footnote to make sure that when you're making this bold manifesto claims, we are aware of how the world actually works, which is, you know, when things become cheaper, we use more of them. And as a result, if it is a bad thing that became cheaper, we might do even more with that bad thing. I think that's a really important dynamic here, which was missing from the whole essay. And for that, I give it a fail. Yeah. And I have to say, to my mind, and this isn't really a smoke signal in the sense of the content itself and how just batshit crazy I found some of it, but to launch something like this, such a self-aggrandizing, self-important blather for 5,000 words with so many highfalutin concepts at a time when you've just had this terrible attack in the Middle East, you've, you, this, the world feels deeply fraught in many re respects. I don't think this is particularly sensitive timing for some, one man's opinion about how to save humanity. <laughs> I mean, there's a time and a place, maybe at the start of the year, maybe when we want- you know, A New and, Year's and, resolution, and equally, maybe, something like that. <laughs> well, in, in a couple of weeks' time, there's going to be a UK summit to try to figure out how to regulate AI. And people obviously understand with all the deep fakes that are already polluting the political environment that there needs to be some regulation for someone to say- regulation, it's never going to work. Just don't even bother to start with. We're, we'll figure it out. And at the same time, praise uh, liberal democracies with uh, good technology skills. I mean, this is just so confused and, and offensive to have out now. It just makes me wonder, again, how out of touch the author might be with what the facts on the ground in humanity's case are or we all have to contend with in the next year, two years, decades, and so forth. I hear it. Well, I went into this podcast, and I think I'll speak for quite a few of our audience thinking, am I going to blue tack this tech manifesto to my whiteboard, or is it going to end up in the trash can? And thanks to your dissection of this, and particularly your use of the word narcissist at the very top of the show, I think it is destined for the trash can. It's going south, not north. And this has been Bubble Trouble. This has been a Technos Realist Manifesto as an Optimist Manifesto. And thank you very much for joining us for this week's show. And we'll be back next week with more Bubble Troubles. If you're new to Bubble Trouble, we hope you'll follow the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. Bubble Trouble is produced by Eric Nuzum, Jesse Baker, and Julia Natt at Magnificent Noise. You can learn more at bubbletroublepodcast.com. Until next time, for my co-host, Will Page, I'm Richard Kramer. 
That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.